Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman. This is part of the U.S. Sports Business Insights from Gator Nation series. Uh, I'm here with Dr. Kaplan Edu. Um, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, the impact of COVID-19 on sports consumption. Um, we'll dive into a little bit of her research, um, how she got, you know, into the industry. <laughs> All right, so doctor, what, what, you know, when you think about um, the sports consumption, you know, holistically, all right, we're talking about events and communities, we're talking about economic impact, we're talking about, um, you know, youth, youth uh, participation in sport was certainly driving the fans. Um, when you think about what the impact of COVID-19 is going to have on sports consumption, um, give us kind of a, a, a breath into some of the study and the research that you have done um, and, and the findings from that. Thanks, Jake. Uh, before we do that, um, I would like to take a, mi a minute to introduce myself a little bit just for our audience. Um, and uh, so um, I'm Kiki Kaplaniru. I'm a professor here at the University of Florida, the College of Health and Human Performance. I've been here 14 years now, and um, my background comes from the sport event industry, I guess. Uh, to be honest, I started from being a, a physical education um, having a physical education degree. And from then on, I went into the health industry where I was working in health clubs as an aerobics instructor and personal trainer. And I saw um, the way of the management of those health clubs and I was intrigued by that. So then I, I did my master's degree after that just to understand a little bit better of how, how to do business in that field and beyond. Um, and at the time, Greece, I'm from Greece originally, that's where the accent comes from, just FYI people. Um, so the uh, Athens was hosting the Olympic games in 2004. Uh, so I was, uh, that was in 2000 when I interviewed for a position there and I worked uh, for the organizing committee and that was my hook into the sport event industry and understanding the impacts that these events have for, for um, the country, the region, the community, the people that are involved uh, with either the planning or the, the support, the, the event preparations uh, by either volunteering or participating in other ways. So, um, so that's, after that, I, I did my PhD at Michigan State and uh, I focused, my research focused on the impacts of sport events on communities. And I, I found that events, even smaller events drove uh, a lot of the perceptions about the destination because they allowed people to experience the destination uh, through the, the event's eyes. So the more successful the event, the more pleasant the experience, it transferred to the destination itself. So that was my beginning point of understanding a little bit more of the impacts of sport events on communities. Uh, fast forward 14 years later, uh, the, the bulk of my work is looking at those impacts and legacies from a bigger standpoint. Uh, so how do we understand the, um, the, the social, environmental and economic impacts, not just the tourism side of things or the destination perceptions, but how having an event in a community can really be used or, or leveraged to benefit the community as a whole and benefit the, the residents of that community, to be honest, beyond the, the primarily the economic impacts. Now to get to, get to your question, uh, the, 
the reason I got into this is the COVID, understanding the COVID-19. Obviously, this is a hot question right now uh, for all the sport businesses and sport entities that uh, are trying to operate under these abnormal circumstances. But um, uh, I got into this because I gave a, a webinar presentation to the Sport Event Tourism Association uh, where we had an audience of, um, of um, uh, convention and visitor bureaus and, and sports commissions across the United States. And one of the, uh, the points and questions that, that came up hot during that presentation was, how do we re-engage the sport consumers back into the venues? How do we bring people back? And that jolted me to, uh, jolted me, sorry, to, to start exploring this and thinking through the, the sport consumer behavior and the research that has been done there, how do we even begin to understand people's re-engagement in sports? So COVID has, I think has changed the way we think of the experience altogether. Uh, certainly the virtual aspect of, of participation has been enhanced and has been offered as an option to the consumer. Um, having said that, I think the sport businesses will probably be able to see how else can we capitalize the consumption process beyond the seats. We have in a venue. We saw, for example, with NBA, they had the virtual seating and people could see themselves during the game and watching the game and all that. And I think this is something that we cannot go back on. I think that will add to the, the whole uh, how do how do we design the event experience for people in the venue and beyond the venue, uh, whether that's through virtual reality or augmented reality, however they want to integrate these technologies to uh, bring more people in and, and to make a profit. To be to be honest, I think that's the bottom line. Yeah, I think there's there's so many different implications, right? And and mm -hmm. you know, for those in the industry, you're running fast and furious. You're trying to figure it out and. Um, for, for those of you on the academia side where you're able to kind of take a step back and look at the research and, um, you know, look at some interesting, you know, hypotheses and, and try and understand some of the trends of where, where are things going, right? You've seen, to your point, um, event experience back from when you were on the organizing committee in Greece and, and understanding such large scale at the Olympics all the way down to you know, a smaller event in a community, um, you know, even in Gainesville, right? And so as you think about the, the difference in scale and how that impacts a community, um, how, how do you go about understanding which events to bring back first? Because, you know, if, if the smaller events still bring back a similar impact, right, you might go to those first because it's easier uh, and it may cost less, but then the bigger ones, you know, does it take more time? Oh, um, thanks for that question. I think this is a, um, in the planning process, there's a number of stakeholders involved. Uh, in, in a small community like the one, like in Gainesville, let's say, uh, it's a good example. Uh, it's a city of 150,000 people um, without the students being here, maybe 200,000 200, with the students being here. Uh, and um, we have uh, the, the main stakeholders that are involved is we have a sports commission that attracts smaller scale events about 50 a year. Uh, they bring the size of these events run from, you know, having two to 300 participants to all the way to 5,000 participants. Uh, some of them are mainly participant events. Some of them are just participant and spectator events. 
and some bring some national media coverage, some just local. Uh, and the, the, I guess there's, I, I, I don't know if I should say there's a priority of which events should be hosted. I think the, the Gainesville, with all the events that they host, it's like a portfolio of events. They have all of these and collectively they create this holistic impact. Now, each of, each of these events, obviously, as you mentioned, it's easier to host if it's a 200 participant event, of course, less logistical uh, headaches uh, to, to, <laughs> to have for, um, for the event. Uh, the bigger it gets, the more stakeholders get involved, the more um, communication coordination among the various players that support the event. And um, it, it, it just becomes more challenging, but it brings more people. So one of the stakeholders is the hot local hotel industry actually the hotels play a big role everywhere and they have a big voice and they they value the bigger events because they bring more people more heads in beds you know more uh, more business for them and they say if we can bring more people and not only bring more people anytime but for a community like Gainesville where football is big and during normal circumstances in the fall hotels are booked during that time they don't care but during the spring and summer there isn't much going on. There's some sports going on, but there isn't as much as the football brings, you know, a 90,000 capacity stadium uh, for the most part sold out at about 80% or 90% uh, brings a lot of people in town. And um, that's, that's, that creates the, you know, different mindset for the local hoteliers. Anyways, so back to the, the, understanding the, the various sport events. It, I would say that all, all the events matter for the community. Again, see them as a portfolio and then logistics comes bec becomes part of the holistic impact process. A little bit about the upcoming Olympics because I think that could be kind of an interesting um, mm -hmm. topic as we wrap up in, in that, you know, put yourself back in the shoes of, of working on the Olympic organizing committee in Greece and, and oh, yeah. just the, the level of scale from, you know, not only an international perspective, but also then down to the local perspective, right? There, there's kind of the two, two yeah. sides of it. Um, when you think about the upcoming Olympics and, and what they're going through in terms of fans, no fans, all these different, um, you know, possibilities that they're probably planning A through Z, um, what goes through your mind in terms of, um, you know, just the, the overall sport consumption post the Olympics based on, you know, who might be watching? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I think the, the, the Tokyo Olympics, uh, unfortunately, faced the, um, the uh, situation of postponing the games. Uh, if you are in the managing the Olympic games process and you know what goes behind the scenes with that, I wanted to cry for this, for these people in the organizing committee. They, it, it was everything. When you plan the Olympics, literally everything, and I'm talking everything is down to the, the minute detail. And I'll give you an example. Um, we have the marathon happening during the Olympics um, and you know, the what time the athletes show up, uh, the exact time the athletes will get their, you know, uniforms, the exact time they will be 
process through whatever the venue and we're talking to the minute this is all laid out and not only that that's the logistical aspect of running the sport competitions there's also the contractual side of things where you know, the, the the organizing committee has to sign contracts with the local government the uh, business owners who rent out their venues uh, the you know the the um, insurance liability all this stuff that is literally uh, attached to the specific dates and times that the event is offered so i from a from a management standpoint it was that's a big hurdle and it did add to the budget the budget balloon because they had to change all those venues again and rebook them and all that stuff so uh, the, the organizing committee, when they host the games, in my opinion, they worry about the spectators a lot to bring them, but the, the broadcasting is the key aspect to this because it's a global event. So you cannot bring you know, all people from the whole globe to attend the games, but you can broadcast it to them. So to me, with, even with this you know, tumultuous year we're going through, uh, in August, if the if the athletes can get there safely, and if they can perform uh, to the best of their abilities um, to showcase what its sport is all about and engage the audience to an extent, you know, to, to actually it it will be a, a showcase of strength to me, and in a way it, it will have a positive impact on the whole sort of sport consumption. I know the media loves negativity loves the cancellation aspect of it, loves the, you know, everything will go wrong. In Japan, they are now having huge spikes with regards to COVID. So the local people are very worried about that. So the, the, they are resisting the idea of having the Olympics. How are we going to do this? Um, but again, at, uh, at the same time, there's for the sports world, in my mind, the Olympics symbolizes such a, such a bigger uh, ideal that um, it will it will be a boost, an emotional boost to the sports entities and the sports consumers that this happened and it happened well. I mean, and the Japanese people have. We're talking precision. It's one of those countries where precision is you know is there. There is no. I don't think the games will fail. They will happen. the The challenge will be to bring the athletes and to have them um, con uh, compete in a safe environment, in as safe as environment as possible in those things. So I think there will be a, pen a po very positive outcome after that. That's what I'm thinking. Well, and, and then you'll have, and then you'll have one, you know, just a year later, right? So. Yeah, exactly. The six months actually, uh, because Beijing 2022 happens in February. So it's almost six, seven months later, uh, the winter games. So what does that do? So so let's talk about that because there's a short time span then between one Olympics to the next when usually you're waiting two years. And so, yeah, you know, is there this uh, shift in, in consumer demand for, you know, different types of sports, right? As opposed to just watching the, the your typical, um, you know, big five leagues or, or college athletics, et cetera. Mm -hmm. because of the different types of sports that do exist in the Olympics, is there a shift um, because they're, they're so jam-packed into the schedule? Yeah. I, th so th the unfortunate part of this for the Beijing organizing committee is that they did not have, they will not have enough time to promote internationally the games because there's a clause in the International Olympic Committee 
contracts that says you cannot promote the one games after the other is done. So they, from a business standpoint, for the organizing committee in Beijing, they are caught a little bit in a, in a, uh, a difficult situation here. So, um, so that's from a management standpoint. Uh, but they are apparently, I just read an article, they are managing well because they're focusing on the, um, the national market and China is huge. So they're, the business of you know, engaging people at the national level, it's there. People have not shied away from that. So that's a great thing. But from, from a global perspective, I would say the winter games have a different market than the summer games, different sports, different audiences. So people will, they, they uh, sort of um, watch the winter games for the different sport and the athletes that come with that. Uh, I mean, I, and the, of course the cultural aspect of it, watching the opening ceremony, that is always an applicable, applicable event to all. And I think people watch that because it has this cultural element to it and they're intrigued by how its country does it and what elements they bring to the table. So that won't take away from the process. And I think people will watch if it's, if it's delivered via broadcasting and the, the COVID is gone, obviously. I don't think much will change that way. Yeah. What's the biggest you know, uh, aha moment or element of surprise that you found when you were on the Olympic committee back in 2004, that might still be very relevant today of once you were in it, you're like, Oh, wow. That's how that worked. Oh, ooh. well, um, the coordination among all departments, uh, because what one department is done is doing impacts the other. And I'll give you an example. Uh, we the the organizing committee has about 30 what we call them 30 functional areas more or less so th from from accreditation to marketing to health to uh, to catering services to the village you know managing the olympic village to the competition obviously that's the biggest department that where all the sports are run to the media departments to strategic planning departments you're talking it's this is just just examples, so much uh, detail and so, so much coordination. So I was, to me, I was blown away about how do you coordinate with all the people at the same time? And the other thing that caught my eye when I was there, it was the, the, um, tr the communication, well, not communication, but observing different cultures come together. So uh, in the organizing committee, we had people from Australia because in Sydney, just passed the torch to Athens for the next game. So we had people from Australia to transfer their knowledge. And we had people from the US as a communications team working with us and, and then the Greek people, very different culture. So I was like, how, how do we all work together in, in this environment? Different norms, different expectations. The Greek people function in a very different way. Uh, the Australian people function in a very different way. So the, actually theoretically uh, learning later about this, you know, we, the Greek people function in a very vertical way. The, the, so you have to ask, to go to the boss, you have to go through five more people. It's very vertical. Um, but in Australia, they were very horizontal. So you can, if you are, let's say, even just the employee or the manager, you can go to the boss and say, hey, can I, is this okay? And, and then, you know, solve the problem. So it was interesting to see how the people with different management mentalities came together to uh, deliver 
on such a big endeavor where all details matter and every single minute matters. And yeah, so that was no, that's fascinating. And and it, and honestly, it relates a little bit to even let's just call it, you know, domestically, right, where different yeah. events take place, because the West Coast is different than the East Coast, which is different than the yeah. Midwest and the Southeast and so on, based on, um, you know, you know, you kind of mentioned kind of the history of an event, right, or yeah. um, the, the culture there in that specific community, uh, what that maybe what that event maybe means to them. Uh, what the sport in that local community might be, right? There, there's certainly uh, you're not you're not doing surfing, right, in Nebraska, right? So there's exactly. um, yeah. there's some differences there. So let's let's touch on the culturistic part of you know events within communities and how that might impact um, again maybe even the the behaviors of the of the consumer. Mm -hmm. um, understanding that there's different cultures around, you know, the U.S. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that question. I think that's very important. And it uh, that's where the size of the community matters, because for smaller communities, uh, event, sport events uh, become a little bit of a, a flagship for the community. They are the main attraction. The residents expect that. They connect with the event. Uh, because think if you're a 20,000 person community and you're hosting a, a youth soccer tournament where people from all over the region uh, flood in and uh, you get to see that and you get to see how your community becomes for a short time frame at the center of the universe for that population. Uh, it really becomes a sense of pride for the local people and they, they really value that. Now, if, as you grow bigger and bigger, the, the cities that host events obviously compete for attention. You know, there's multiple events happening and uh, which one the residents gravitate to or how the media gravitates to changes. So it does um, vary uh, because of the size, but I think residents, we found that residents who are involved obviously with a sport that is taking place and, and with sports in general, they tend to be way supportive and they do understand the impacts those events bring into the community. And because of that, they are, they are supportive. They, they, if it comes to a discussion of uh, uh, providing justification to the local governments for further supporting these events financially, I think the local residents can see the benefits from that and speak to that, to that uh, extent. Um, so, yeah, it varies. Obviously, as you grow in size with the event, the media coverage increases too. So the, the residents become even more aware that this is happening and this is, is big for my community and all that. But um, the, the, there may be, as you grow bigger and bigger, then you may almost cross the line to resistance because there's sometimes residents, they don't want to see too much going on in the community. I don't want to be having to deal with traffic and and uh, you know changes in the roads and like blockage and all this disruption that could come from having a big event like in Tampa this weekend is a Super Bowl so there's all the COVID measures are there and although you know people there will be way less people there's still changes in the local community that they they um, the residents have to deal with the business people the restaurant people and the hotel people are they very love happy. it they love they, it yeah very happy as long but, as long as they're open as long as they're open you know and yeah. i think um you know the 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 last thing that i would say is you know the way in which 
um, you know, each community is impacted with their various events certainly sets the precedent for the future as well, right? Because if, if an event doesn't go well or, you know, the it skips a year, right? And people kind of realize, oh, well, maybe, maybe we don't need that event, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, that can kind of change behavior for the future. And, and it, you can't discount um, what a gap year will potentially do, right? Right. right. I think um, love to kind of get your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up because, and it reminds me of a good point. Recurring events are critical for communities. They are critical for the psyche of the community uh, they, and the image of the community. And I, I, I'm thinking Boston Marathon. This past year, it didn't happen because of COVID, right? So virtual things happened. They changed the way they did the participation event. But Boston is, the marathon is part of the, it's part of Boston, you know, like that they go hand in hand. So skipping a year, it's, it, it could create two things. Either people will get really, really nostalgic or, you know, they will really miss it and they will be coming back in hordes next year or, you know, to, to support it, to, to cheer for the runners and all that. Or they will be some of it. Some of them will say, this was awesome. We didn't have to deal with all the, the, uh, uh, problems that this e event brings, which there are not many of those people who say that, but still some. And, um, you know, the, the, and we missed a year, so what? You know, so, um, or it could change the business way of doing the event. So Boston Marathon maybe, maybe offer virtual opportunities to people who maybe cannot travel or they wanna do a participation from their communities and kind of connect with the event that way. So it will be very interesting to see how it all plays out. And it would, I think it would certainly change the way we were doing business. It's not gonna be the same anymore. We're done with that. I think there will be a lot of change. Definitely more research studies to come. I know that uh, you'll be keeping an eye on the Olympics um, and, Absolutely. and, and yeah. many events to come in 21 and, and 22. Cause again, I think you know, what, what's transpired in 2020, what's going to transpire in 2021 will, will, you know, we can't, we can't look past the fact that that will affect 22 and 23 and 24 and so on. And so, um, Dr. K really appreciate your time, uh, on, on our sports business insights from Gator nation series. Um, you are in the heart of Gainesville. And so we appreciate your time. Um, sure. certainly those perspectives and, uh, certainly look forward to the, the remainder of the series. Thank you, Jake. Uh, it was great. Thanks for having me.